It is a joyful privilege for me tonight to open the Word of God with you and to open the book of Hebrews. All of the teens anticipate if I stand up, I'm going to say those words. Please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Uh, I started the book of Hebrews with the youth back in June of 2021. So we will finish it before we get to that two-year mark. We have four more messages in chapter 13, and then we will have uh, completed the wonder study that we have been in in uh, the book of Hebrews over the past couple of years with the, the students. And it has been a tremendous encouragement in my own heart, a tremendous encouragement in the, the youth ministry and uh, even amongst the leaders, just rich conversations of the, the glories of Christ and the dangers of our own hearts. So I am bringing the book of Hebrews to you tonight And uh, don't worry, I have uh, narrowed it down to only chapters 1 through 13, and uh, we will devote our time to it this evening. I have to say, in preparation for a message like this, um, this is really one of the hardest messages for me to teach, and that is not because of a lack of content. That is because an overabundance of content and riches and depth that I would love to bring it all to you, but... Literally, that has been uh, 51 sermons so far with five more in Hebrew. So that, that amount of content could not possibly come across in one message. So I am seeking to do the near impossible this evening and cover an overview of the book of Hebrews. Now, I do not want this to be merely an introduction to the book where uh, often an introduction will include some, uh, some preliminary thoughts uh, that would prepare you for a study of the book and kind of give you a working outline for the book, I would like us to actually spend the majority of our time working through the text of Hebrews and uh, seeking to understand the author's main point of this message and how all of the individual pericopes, passages within the book of Hebrews really contribute to that main point. And uh, if we have the slide up there, we do, you see the title is Jesus is Greater. This is certainly the main theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is greater. Uh, He is superior. If you look at many commentaries, they would say the superiority of Christ. I certainly love that title, but I've simplified it to be Jesus is greater. And there's a continual refrain running through the book of Hebrews. And this refrain, kind of like we sing in a chorus where it just keeps coming back, is do not turn away from him. It's a warning of apostasy, a warning that comes up five times in the book of Hebrews. Now, every single warning is not identical. It's not as though he he says the same words as a warning to the congregation each time. But every time he brings up the warning, it is a warning of apostasy, saying, saying, Beloved, guard your heart in this area. Watch for this weakness creeping up. Watch for this tendency that is common to all of us and be on guard because this is the path to apostasy. Essentially, stay off of that path. So if you wanted the expanded title of the book of Hebrews, I would say, Jesus is greater, so hold fast. Hold fast to him. The warning is that we would not hold fast to him. We would not hold fast to Christ. Let me cover a few of those preliminary uh, things as we would jump into the book. Who is the book of Hebrews addressed to? This is important in studying the book. Now, the title that we have uh, at the 
opening of, of your Bible to the book of Hebrews says likely something like the letter to the Hebrews or uh, early Greek manuscripts would include a prescript that said to the Hebrews. Now that was not original, that is not in the earliest manuscripts, but it has been widely accepted throughout the history of the church that this letter is written to Hebrew Christians, namely Jewish believers that are likely not near Jerusalem because they are speaking Greek, they're not speaking uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, the, the book is written in incredible Greek, and all of the Old Testament references, which there are tons of them, are taken from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. So it is, it is obvious that the readers that would have received this letter initially were proficient Greek speakers, but it's also very obvious that they have a deep Jewish heritage. Um, it is likely that these readers were in Rome, where Greek is the predominant language, and this would be around the time of 64 AD, as many Jews have been dispersed from Jerusalem, and uh, now there's likely this group of believers, likely in Rome, that's not definitive, but that's a, a good guess. You see at the very end of the letter, the author uh, sends a greetings from Italy, and is where he is he's writing from. And these uh, readers have begun to suffer a level of persecution. The original recipients, I believe it's written around 64 AD, around the same time as 1 Peter, where persecution is on the rise. It is, is not a popular thing in this culture to be a Christian. And they're beginning to face hostility because of their faith. They begin to suffer. In uh, 10.4, uh, the author speaks of the seizure of their property has already happened. So because of their faith, their property has begun to be confiscated from them. There's uh, talk of imprisonment in the letter. Uh, then it gets to chapter 12, verse 4, and says, they have not resisted yet to the point of shedding of blood. So this is to say that the church is facing increasing hostility, but they have not yet faced martyrdom. The next question that comes up... And Probably the most popular question when approaching the book of Hebrews is, who wrote it? And uh, that question will remain after, uh, after we study this tonight. Uh, it is not likely Paul. I can say that. I, I do not believe out of the 13 names that have been commonly given in church history, uh, to me, Paul is not convincing. And none of the names that are given are, uh, are definitive or sure, a great guess. We can say with certainty, um, I, I would say because of Hebrews 2, verse 3 and 4, uh, it is not Paul. So there in Hebrews 2, verse 3 and 4, just briefly to answer why I don't believe it's Paul, the author says that God confirmed this great salvation, this so great a salvation that we must not neglect he confirmed it by testifying with them. Who is them? Back in verse 3, those who heard the gospel from the Lord. So you have the author of Hebrews writing as a, a second generation believer saying, we heard the gospel from those who heard it from Christ. Uh, I didn't hear it myself. We heard it from them. And he says, God testified with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. What he's saying is they've received a, a divinely inspired message. How do we know? 
because the people we heard it from heard it from Christ, and God proved it was his message by giving them supernatural sign gifts, by attesting to his message with his power. And why do I believe it's not Paul based on that verse? Because Paul would not disassociate himself with the apostles. Paul would clearly claim, I was taught my gospel by Jesus, not by any man. And uh, he said he had all of the sign gifts. So, therefore, I don't believe it would be Paul. Um, And also the letter, much of the internal evidence would uh, attribute it to be a different writer. If you made me guess one name, I, I would guess the name Apollos, just because of his description in the book of Acts of him being someone who is mighty in the scriptures, someone who is a scholar who is, who is very great with the Greek language and someone who is mighty in the scriptures, able to preach Christ from the Old Testament that Acts tells us he did. So it would be someone like Apollos. I wouldn't be definitive to say it's him, but uh, it is likely someone who circled in Paul's ministry orbit because of the very last line uh, of the letter speaking about Timothy. Um, it is someone close to Paul, but not Paul, and someone who's a second generation believer. More importantly, let's consider uh, who it is today that will benefit from the book of Hebrews. If you find yourself tempted to neglect Christ in his word, this book is going to be a tremendous help to you. If you find yourself treating sin casually, being comfortable with hardness of heart in your life, uh, being casual towards things that Christ died to atone for, this book is going to help you see Christ rightly and see your sin rightly so that you will lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles. If you find yourself pursuing a Christianity that is merely based on your comfort, or your traditions, or family values, rather than a a fixed hope on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, this book will be a tremendous help for you. If you're tempted to be distracted from Christ, to set your heart and mind on every other thing that assaults our hearts on a weekly basis, the book of Hebrews is going to help realign our thinking, to to cause us to fix our eyes on Christ, to consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to not turn away from him. Because that is the temptation in the original audience, is that as they are facing this increased persecution, this increased difficulty on account of the word, on account of their profession of Christ, their temptation at this point is to turn back to what's familiar to turn back to what's comfortable, namely Judaism, to turn from the gospel, from the word of God given through Christ and say, I I liked what Moses gave. That was good enough. I was not being persecuted by Jewish family members whenever I was following Judaism. So you know what? It it, It worked before, so let's go back to it. That's the temptation. And this book says, no, Christ is greater. Jesus is greater And we must avoid turning from him. We must avoid spiritual apostasy. So I've given it this title, Jesus is Greater. And this term greater is used 13 times in Hebrew. So it is uh, the author's favorite word, you might say. Uses it 13 times, and it's only used six other times in the entire New Testament outside of Hebrews. 
A similar phrase is also used, the phrase more excellent. That's used three times. So between these 16 uses of, of something greater and more excellent is where the theme of the superiority of Christ, Jesus is greater, comes from. Just real quickly, listen to the descriptions using those terms, greater and more excellent. In one four. Christ is better than angels. He's greater than angels and has a more excellent name. In 7.9, he promises a better hope. Sorry, 7.19. In 7.22, he inaugurated a better covenant. In 8.6, he is the mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. Also in 8.6, he has a more excellent ministry. In 9.23, he offered a better sacrifice. In 10.34, he lays up for us a better possession in a better country. In 11.16, he has prepared a better country for us. In 11.35, in him we anticipate a better resurrection and a better future. And lastly, in Hebrews 12.24, it says of Christ's blood that it speaks better than the blood of Abel. Just throughout the entirety of this letter, you get that theme over and over and over. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior to what? Yes, to everything. But let's look specifically. Uh, I want to give you an outline, and we will begin working our way through the book for, sadly, only we have about 33 minutes to make our way through these 13 chapters. Let's, let's do our best. I begin my division of the letter into four sections here, and the first section covers chapters one through four, and I've titled this, The Greatness of the Son. The Greatness of the Son. Just look with me at verses one through four of chapter one, as the author gives us seven expressions of the greatness of the Son. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers... In the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Then he goes on to describe the greatness of the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. You say, what is that name? Son. That's what that name is. This is highlighting the greatness of the son, the heir of all things, creator of the world, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation, the the imprint of his very nature, a one-to-one comparison, the sustainer of all things, the perfect high priest, the one who is currently seated in the place of maximum authority and power at the right hand of God. The rest of chapter 1 goes on to describe why Christ is better than angels. You might think, that seems like a strange comparison. Uh, we, we already saw in the first few verses, this is the one through whom the world was made. This is the heir of all things. Why do we even need to consider that he is better than angels? Well, it is due to the original audience. Uh, it's not that they had a fascination with angels. This is a question of revelation here. 
of, of how God gave his word. So here, notice the, the, the letter began in verse 1 and 2 that God spoke previously through the prophets in many portions in many ways, but now in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. There's a comparison of revelation here. And this is not to say the New Testament supersedes the Old Testament as though the, the Old Testament is inferior, what God said through the prophets in many portions in many ways. That's not the case here. But what he is doing is highlighting the benefit of further revelation, the revelation that has come through the Son. So catch us up. What are you talking about with angels? Well, the original audience would have understood uh, that the law, the Mosaic law, was mediated through angels. That is to say, if you looked in Acts 7.53, Galatians 3.19, and I left out some of my other references, there are multiple references to angels attending God at Mount Sinai when he gave the law. So here, when you are seeing a comparison of Christ to angels, they're comparing revelation coming through Christ versus revelation coming from Sinai through angels. And here... The author gives seven reasons Jesus is better than angels in chapter 1, verse 5 through 14. I'll just skim over these. In verse 5, he's the eternal son. In verse 6, angels worship him, not the other way around. In verse 7, angels are his ministers. They're his servants. In verse 8 and 9, the son of God reigns forever. In verse 10, the son is the eternal creator. In verse 13, the Son rules at the Father's right hand. And then verse 14, angels are merely ministers of the elect. It even, uh, in this sense, subordinates angels to believers here in, in verse 14. As he highlights, uh, angels are, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? He's saying not only are angels inferior to Christ, but rather they're inferior to you as a believer in the sense that they're they're God's messengers to minister to God's people. That's an incredible perspective the author gives us to highlight the greatness of the Son, which brings us to the first warning in the book of Hebrews. And we've already looked at a lot of these warnings together as a congregation, so I'm going to fly over them quickly. The first warning is, notice in 2 verse 1, it says, for this reason. What is the reason? Because of the greatness of the Son and God speaking through Him, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. This warning is this, if Christ is this great, you must pay attention to His word. Do not neglect, you see in verse 3, so great a salvation. To not pay heed to the word of God is to neglect so great a salvation. A salvation that comes through God the Son. A salvation that, uh, that is given as we saw back in verse 3. He made purification of sins. Do not neglect this great salvation. Because of the greatness of the Son, we must listen to Him. Let's keep going on in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 5 through 18, the author speaks of Christ being greater as a man. Greater as a man. The, the greater humanity here. 
In verse 5 through 8, he quotes from Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8 is an incredible psalm detailing God's purpose for man. Uh, This man being created in this glorious position and ultimately man having dominion over the entire earth. But the problem is, is man's sin has caused him not to fulfill that position. And the author's point in chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, is that Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. He is the greatest man to ever live. All things are going to be subjected to him. Verse 8. That's uh, where he quotes from Psalm 8 and says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then he goes on to say, We don't yet see all things subjected to him. There at the end of verse 8. We don't yet see everything subjected to Christ. He, as the greatest man, the fulfillment of Psalm 8, it would seem that everything would already be under his feet, but that's not the case. What do we see right now? So that's leaving us with anticipation of what is yet to come for this glorious son. And then he points us now to his humanity, what he accomplished in his humanity in chapter 2, verse 9 through 18. Notice the way he says it. We, at the end of verse 8, we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but here's what we do see. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, there's a lot packed in this one verse. And just to briefly mention it, Christ was made for a little while lower than the angels. What is this? When he takes on humanity when he is born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. The 33 years of his humanity on this earth, he is in that position, uh, or his humanity endures on, but in his 33 years, in his incarnation, he is for a little while lower than the angels. But look at the glorious purpose at the end of the verse. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For Christ to fulfill the purpose of man, he had to be made temporarily lower than the angels. So the rest of this section here, and from verse 9 through verse 18, the author just highlights divine purposes for Christ's humanity. I'll just skim quickly over them. Why did Christ take on humanity? Why did the Son the, the eternally great Son, have to be made like us. In verse 9, to die in our place. In verse 10, to pioneer our salvation. In verse 11 to 13, to claim us as His brothers. He had to be made like us to claim us as His brothers. In verse 14, He became man in order to put death to death. In verse 15, to free us from the fear of death. In 17, he had to become man to be our high priest. Look at that in verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. And then also there in 17, to make propitiation for our sins. And in verse 18, to help us in our need. 
For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is why the infinitely glorious and great Son of God had to take on humanity in order to accomplish this great salvation. We continue looking at the greatness of the Son in chapter 3, as the author highlights that he is greater than Moses. He is greater than Moses. You see that in verse 3, but first look at verse 1. Notice what he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He calls believers to consider Jesus, to think deeply upon him. And then he gives a, a, a contrast between Moses serving in God's house. And he specifically points out in verse 5, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. But look at 6. What about Christ? But Christ was faithful as a son. What's he highlighting here? That Christ is superior to Moses. You say this to a Jew who is uh, someone with a Jewish heritage who is tempted to go back to Judaism. You just said Christ is greater than the greatest prophet to ever walk the earth, the, the meekest man to ever live. You're telling me Jesus is greater. Look at the way he described it in verse 3. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. It's just highlighting the supremacy of Christ. Greater than Moses. Moses was faithful as a servant, but Christ was faithful as a son. Which leads to the second warning passage in uh, chapter 3, verse 7 through 19. And this warning is, do not harden your heart. You see that in verse 7. Therefore... Just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, says when they provoked me. He he goes on to contrast Israel or to to use Israel as a a divine illustration of hardened unbelief and their their wilderness wanderings. Here he's quoting from Psalm 95. He says, what happened? They, they, They professed to follow God. They professed to obey him. And yet, as soon as Moses goes up the mountain, they harden their heart and and, uh, craft an idol to worship. They harden their heart. They are not listening to the word of God. So he gives us some some encouragements in verse 12 and 13 that we are to serve as a protection for one another, to guard one another from hardness of heart. In verse 12, we watch our heart's response to the truth so that we are not being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In verse 13, we are encouraging one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. And that phrase there, today, in Psalm 95, is, is rightly put in, in uh, quotation marks. It is today, meaning when you hear His voice. Every time we hear the Word of God, we are to encourage one another so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is a protection. You and I are a divine protection for one another to guard each other from apostasy. That's that warning. He uh, continues there in the rest of of chapter 3 to highlight that uh, Israel's primary problem in verse 19 is diagnosed. We see they were not able to enter into God's rest because of unbelief. 
problem here, the hard heart, is a heart that does not believe God. He goes on in chapter 4 and speaks of a greater rest. The believer's rest that is offered in Christ is infinitely better than this, this earthly promised land that Joshua sought to take Israel into that they could not even enter because of unbelief. And this promise of the believer's rest still stands, he says in verse 6 through 10. We don't have time to unpack these verses here in chapter 4, but I do want to highlight uh, a verse that is very familiar to us. In, in Hebrews 4.12, we're familiar with this verse. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This verse is given, I just want to highlight the context here, in the context of the believer's rest, Israel not being able to enter because of hardened unbelief. So he says in verse 11, Therefore let us be diligent to enter his rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So he's saying, let us be diligent, so we do not fail to enter God's rest like Israel did. What was their problem? Unbelief, hardness of heart. So notice here, here's his reason. Here's his reason that we must be diligent. Why? Because of the word. Because the word is living. It is effective or active. It is, it is powerful. That's the idea of sharper. It is exposing or piercing. And it is discerning. It is able to judge. In other words, he's saying we should strive for diligence because of the nature of God's word. And then in verse 13, because of the certainty of his judgment. There in 13, he says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He's saying, Beloved, let us be diligent because God's word is piercing and powerful and effective And also his judgment is sure. Everyone will give an account to him. So we must be diligent to make sure that we enter his rest. We come to the wonderful verses of chapter 4, 14 to 16. He says here to hold fast. This first section of the letter closes with an incredible transition between the greatness of the son and the greatness of his priesthood. Look at here. The the second major section I have called in uh, chapters 5 through 7 the greatness of his priesthood. But look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He is our great high priest, our sympathetic high priest, our supportive high priest who gives us grace to help in time of need. And he is none other than Jesus, the Son of God. So there we transition from the greatness of the Son to now specifically, it's not, it's not like we no longer look at the greatness of the Son, but we, we narrow our focus to be the greatness of His priesthood. The greatness of His priesthood in uh, chapter 5, verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 1 through chapter seven twenty-eight. He is greater than earth, earthly priest in chapter 5, verse 1 through 10. In uh, the beginning of chapter 5, the author gives us uh, a description of the requirements of a high priest in verses 1 through 4. He just 
uh, is speaking generally here in these first four verses and says, here's what was normal for a high priest. And then in verse 5 through 10 of chapter 5, he demonstrates that Christ is the fulfillment. He is the greater high priest. He was selected by God. He shares in our weakness and he offers the ultimate sacrifice for sins. And then we come to the third warning in chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 12. This is a, a lengthy warning, and I, I did get to teach this one from the pulpit as well, so I won't uh, belabor this point. But the warning is, do not remain immature. Do not remain immature. The way this warning starts is incredible. He, notice he started speaking about Christ as our high priest. He gets down to verse 10 of chapter 5 being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he pauses and he's like, seems like my audience is drifting right now. It seems like they are failing to grasp the significance of Christ as our Melchizedekian high priest. So he says in verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say, meaning I've only just started talking about his high priestly ministry, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You have these lazy spiritual ears. Then he goes on in uh, the rest of chapter 5 to unpack spiritual immaturity, and he contrasts it with spiritual maturity in verse 14. Solid food. That's the, his description of Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood. This is solid food. This is substantive theology. This is deep and rich truth of the Scripture that Christ is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And this solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So he warns of immaturity, and then he goes into chapter 6 and says, we must press on to maturity there in verse 1. And then gives the terrifying warning of, here's what happens if someone persist on and on and on in spiritual immaturity and they they have all these spiritual experiences all this spiritual exposure and then they turn away he's saying they in verse six they it is impossible to restore that one to repentance because what are they doing they've already had all the benefits of being in the church they've heard all the truth they previously affirmed it and now they are trampling underfoot the son of god they put him to open shame. They are despising Christ. They have turned away in apostasy because they have persisted in spiritual immaturity. Now, the good news is the author is not presenting as though all of his audience are in that condition of, of spiritual immaturity and ultimately leading to apostasy. He says in verse 9 of chapter 6, but beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, even though we're talking this way. He's like, I'm giving you a severe warning, but I'm not telling you as a pastor, I think you're all unbelievers. That's not what I'm saying here. He's saying, I'm giving this warning because there's a real propensity, a real tendency in our hearts uh, to, to turn off our ears, to have lazy spiritual listening to, to crucial truths that God has given for our sanctification, like Christ being a, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He's saying, so you must press on to maturity. Don't keep laying the, the same ground of Jesus loves me. Yes, remember he loves you, but now move on to deeper truths. 
And that's what he ultimately gets to there. But he, he spends the rest of chapter 6 just highlighting the greatness of the promise for the believer. I, I love the way he describes it in verse 19 and 20 as he says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. That's where our hope goes, all the way into the presence of God. That's the idea of entering within the veil, going into the most holy place. And we'll see soon the true holy place where God is seated. He says where Jesus is entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, back to the order of Melchizedek. That's what he goes back to here in chapter 7. And chapter 7 speaks of Melchizedekian priesthood. We will not plumb the depths of it due to time constraints, but he, he does set up in verse 1 through 10 that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Now, a commonly misunderstood verse is verse 9 and 10, where he speaks of Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek. You, you remember this, but he says, and so to speak through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. What is he saying? In a sense, I'm not saying this is an exegetical description of, of Genesis where Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, but in a sense, it is showing that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. How? Because uh, in verse 10, Levi was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. He is just showing here, he's not, again, he, he adds that phrase in there, so to speak. It's a, it's a Greek way of saying, and, and uh, parabolically speaking, he, he shows the greatness of Melchizedek by still being in Abraham's loins. Ultimately, Abraham is Levi's father. He would come much later, and Abraham is paying tithes to Melchizedek then. So that's just, again, that's the deep end of the pool, but he is showing us that Melchizedek is a greater priest than Levi. Ultimately, what's the whole point of even bringing up another priesthood? Why does it matter that Christ is of the, Levitic, of the Melchizedekian priesthood and not Levitical? It's because ultimately he goes on to show the imperfection of the Levitical priesthood in, in verses 11 through 19. The Levitical priesthood was not able to obtain perfection. Look at verse 11. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? So here, the author's point is this. If the Levites could have accomplished eternal redemption... Christ would not have to have come in the order of Melchizedek. How do you know Christ has come in the order of Melchizedek? It's a great question. It takes you to the author of Hebrews' favorite psalm. That's right. He has a favorite psalm, a psalm he quotes over and over and over in the book. We've already seen it referenced back in chapter 1. It's, it's referenced uh, at least six or eight times. I don't have that right in front of me, but it is Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is an incredible messianic psalm because what it does is highlight two features of the Messiah that is to come. And that is where uh, David uh, says to his Lord or, or Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies under your feet. 
And it goes on not only to highlight the reign of the Messiah as a king, but it also, in verse 4 of Psalm 110, highlights the ministry of the Messiah as a priest. It's just incredible how specific and nuanced, and like when we were talking about the possibility of Apollos writing Hebrews, this is the kind of details I'm pointing to. He was mighty in the Scriptures. He is able to look carefully at the Old Testament and rightly understand this, this could only be speaking of Christ. Christ came uh, uh, of what line? Not of the Levites, but of the tribe of Judah, the kingly line. And yet at the same time, he is a priest, according to, you can see it down in verse 17. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110, verse 4. He's saying the Messiah has to be a priest forever, and it can't be the Levitical priest. They failed over and over. They couldn't accomplish this atonement. He had to come of another line, the line of Melchizedek. This leads us to the third major section of the book in chapters 8 through 10. A few minutes left. Where here the author highlights the greatness of his ministry. So the focus turns now from not so much his, his position of being a priest, but now what he actually accomplished in his ministry. You can see that right in verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand, uh, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord has pitched. Look down at verse 6 of, of chapter 8. He says in verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Notice here, he's not highlighting the fact that he is a priest. Now he's speaking specifically of his priesthood. In verse 1, he has taken his seat at the right hand of God. In verse 6, he has obtained a more excellent ministry. And he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Enacted on better promises. And this is the theme of chapters 8 through 10. That he is mediating a better covenant. The new covenant in his blood. In chapter 9, he ministers in a greater tabernacle. You have here a, a, a lot of comparison and contrasting of the Levitical priesthood's ministry and Christ's ministry. So you see in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, where he describes the ministry of the Levites, where uh, you see all of the details in verses 1 through 5 of, of the furniture that would have been in the Holy of Holies. Like, why are we talking about furniture in the Holy of Holies? Because this was where the priests were to minister. And then in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 9, it speaks about their ministry. And notice the, uh, the result of their ministry was ultimately, in verse 10, it could only accomplish bodily washings. It, it could only bring about external cleansing. And it gets down to verse 11. Here's the contrast. But... When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That's to say, not of this creation. This is describing Christ ministering in the heavenly tabernacle. 
in the very presence of God where Moses was given instructions for the tabernacle and said, do exactly like this. Why? Because it is, it is a depiction of where God resides. Christ is ministering where God actually resides. And notice he has a superior offering in verse 12. That is to say, I'm sorry, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. Not external washing, not even a one-year temporary atonement, eternal redemption. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer and sprinkling of those things which have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ has a greater ministry, ministering in the very presence of God, offering His spotless blood, accomplishing eternal redemption, accomplishing a cleansed conscience for the worshiper. This is what the Levites could not possibly do. For the sake of time, we've got to keep running on ahead. This... Uh, Comparison and contrast of the Levitical ministry and Christ's priestly ministry continues through chapter 10, verse 18, and ultimately concludes there that the, the priest daily ministered the same sacrifices over and over, but Christ's sacrifice is once for all, and Christ's sacrifice actually accomplishes forgiveness. Notice verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things there no longer there is no longer any offering for sin saying there's no more offering to be made why because the sins are forgiven the wrath of the father is satisfied that's Christ's ministry the greatness of his ministry let's look at the last section briefly as we close from 10:19 through 13:25 the end of the letter this is the response to the greatness of his ministry this is how to respond to the greatness of the Son, the, the, the greatness of His priestly ministry and His Melchizedekian priesthood and what He has accomplished, here's the response. Pick up in, uh, in chapter 10, look at verse 19 through 25 just briefly. He begins with this great therefore and then gives a bunch of reasons. Therefore, so on account of all that Christ has accomplished, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, this is is him summarizing the last uh, few chapters from 7 to where we're at now. He says, here's the response. Here is how you respond to Christ as your great high priest. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And thirdly, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This is the response to the greatness of Christ. Come to God in worship. Cling to the confession. That's holding fast to your faith. And consider how to stimulate one another, how to minister to one another. And that leads us to the 
fourth warning in 10, 26 to 31. We'll just mention it briefly. Lord willing, I'll get to teach this in the pulpit sometime soon. This warning is do not live in deliberate sin. You see that clearly described in 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Seeing that why do we need each other so much? Notice verse 26 begins with four. Here's why we shouldn't forsake the gathering of the saints and why we should stimulate one another because if we go on sinning willfully, it's a demonstration that we are not in the faith, that there's no longer a sacrifice to cover our sins because we've hardened our hearts and apostatized. We've got to move on to uh, the rest of chapter 10 is ultimately an exhortation for enduring faith. He says, you have need of endurance in in chapter 10, uh, verse 36. You have need of endurance. So let me give you chapter 11, the hall of faith. Here is what endurance looks like. Endurance is, uh, is, is believing by faith, is exercising faith to the persevering of the soul. That's how chapter 10 ends. And then chapter 11, you have 40 verses there giving the explanation and examples of enduring faith. All of chapter 11 is ultimately the author saying, we need to build up your endurance of faith. So let me just give you example after example of faithful uh, believers throughout history. And then in chapter 12, he gives more encouragement for enduring faith. The primary encouragement in verse 1 and 2, look to Jesus Look to Jesus, the one who has endured faithfully and perfectly. Let us run the race with endurance that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. It's highlighting the endurance of Christ. So look to him so you can endure as well. And then in uh, chapter 12, verse 3 through 11, He tells them they need endurance and God has tailor-made discipline, suffering for them to produce further endurance. Uh, One comment here on the passage of discipline in uh, verse 3 through 11 is he is not speaking of discipline here as, as divine consequences for sin. Here he is not saying because you sin, God's going to discipline you. Here he's using the term discipline as general instruction and correction for our lives. He's just saying God brings about suffering in the lives of believers so that we may share in his holiness, so that we would have endurance. So do not despise when God brings suffering into your life. It means you're a son. It means that he loves you. It means that he's sanctifying you. He goes on in chapter 12 and says, because we are being equipped by God's discipline, we are to minister to others in verse 12 through 17. In verse 18 through 24, he highlights the fact that we have access to God in true worship. That's motivation for us to endure is is that you haven't come to Mount Sinai in verse 18 through 21, but you have come to Mount Zion. Why is that? motivation to endure he's saying because you have access to god endure persevere in trials and suffering because you can approach the very throne of god and the blood of jesus that covers your sin speaks something better for you than the blood of abel speaks forgiveness and the rest of chapter 12 is the last warning 
Last warning, do not refuse him who is speaking. It's pointing back to the, the word being spoken through the Son that runs throughout the epistle, and he says, do not refuse him who is speaking. This idea of refusing here is the idea of excusing yourself from listening. Do not excuse yourself from listening to the one who is speaking. Don't excuse yourself from listening to Christ. And then you get to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a, a continuing exhortation for endurance. Endurance is still going here. And uh, the first quality of that endurance is love. In verses 1 through 6, let brotherly love continue. Love must go on in the church. It must continue. In verses 7 through 16 of chapter 13, he, he says your endurance is demonstrated by offering sacrifices of praise. Here's the believer's response. We're not offering Levitical sacrifices of animals. No, we're offering sacrifices of praise to our God, and that is pleasing to Him. It is acceptable to Him. And then he concludes uh, in verse 17 to 19, calling for submission and asking for prayer for those who are ministering. And then uh, I wanted to close our, our time by just reading his benediction in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 13. Before I do that, I, just, I feel like the, what we've covered so far doesn't need much more description, but we need a book like Hebrews to fix our heart and, hearts and minds on Christ so that we will endure. You just get this far in the letter and you're thinking, why would we ever turn from him? Why would we neglect his words? Why would we harden our hearts to his words? Why would we reject his ministry? Christ is better. He is superior. He is supreme. So hold fast to him. Next exhortation of Hebrews. And let's conclude with verse 20 and 21 of chapter 13. It says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Indeed, that's my prayer for us. As, as we certainly did a quick flyover of the book of Hebrews this evening and the youth still a, a little more uh, ground to cover before we conclude. But this is our prayer that the God of peace who accomplished this incredible salvation through Christ would equip us in every good thing to do his will. And that is what Hebrews serves to do. It equips us to endure, to, to, to persevere in faith, looking to Christ, our great high priest, has accomplished a salvation that we could never accomplish. Let's bow together. Father, we're so thankful that you have not left us lacking when we consider the amount of revelation that you have given. Indeed, you have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness and everything that you have given, all scripture that is God-breathed, the inspired word of God is profitable. We have felt that prophet tonight in teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that we are equipped for every good work. So, 
Father, we just express our gratitude. We thank you for giving your revelation through Christ, through the matchless Son, to whom none can pair. And we do not want to have dull ears in listening to him. We want to pay much more close attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So, Lord, draw our hearts to be fixed on Christ. Cause our eyes to be fixed on on Christ who endured the cross. And may our our hearts and eyes being fixed on Him cause us to endure endure in every affliction and every difficulty. May we be faithful ministers to one another so that uh, we would... uh, through ministering to one another, keep one another from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, guard us from what our hearts are prone to and use these warnings to, uh, to solidify our perseverance in faith. We thank you for our time tonight in Hebrews. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.